This is conversation three, the third pillar of Bob Cooley's youth. After being thrown out of Marquette, Bob's father encourages him to take the police admissions exam, which he does. We also discuss Bob's police work and the near-fatal car accident that changes the trajectory of his life. Bob, what is the defining moment that brings you to become a police officer? I came home and, and my dad said to me, just said to me, son, he said, they'll be starting another class at the academy in a, in a couple of months and you'll be 20 by that time. Why don't you take the test? Why don't you come and I'll arrange to have you take the test uh, for the police department? And again, it paid, it paid, to me, it paid big money. I mean, it was obviously very, you know, low pay, but to me, this is big money. Yeah. $12,000 a year is what, you know, they start you at. The way it would have worked out great was they had a class that would start that summer, and the class was like eight weeks, I think. If I passed the test and if I got in the top, you know, one or 2%, I could go to the first classes. Because they had about, I think they had about 12,000 people taking the test. Initially, when I got out, as I told you before, I wanted to go to the job at the steel mills because that paid good money. You're at Loyola. You're going to school during the day. You got this cushy job at this advertising agency. Your father recommends you take the admission exam to join the Chicago Police Department. That, that Exactly. And, and I, I, I wound up being in the top of the list. They sent some people out to talk to me, and then now they investigated me. I, you know, I fell out some pay. Ever been arrested? And I said, no, well, I lied. I was arrested at Marquette. In fact, you know, this is probably being thrown out. I had gotten into a fight in the dorm, and I got taken over to a police station. I wound up pleading guilty to disorderly conduct. And I got a year's probation. And, you know, I had uh, this. Is, now, this is, this is when I was back at home. I was doing that time when I was back at home. I had a report and whatever. I thought they would never find out about this. Well, they did. What happened was I got contacted by the policemen that came. Now, my dad also, my dad was in recruit processing. Well, there were about four policemen involved in that where they would go out and investigate the recruits. Well, when this guy found out about that arrest up there, he came by the house. He says, I, I, what about what about this thing at Marquette? And, you know, and I said, well, I didn't, I didn't think that mattered because I said I thought it was dismissed after, you know, I, I did my probation. Uh, I was told it was dismissed, and but you, you didn't mention it here on your record. He said to me, uh, your dad, it would break his heart. If he knew about something like this, I'm going to throw, he says, I'm going to throw away this application that you made and I'm going to have you do a new one. And in there, you indicate that you had been arrested, uh, you know, but you were given like supervision and now it's been dismissed. I would have been, I would have been automatically just dismissed because I filed a false report. Uh, that, that's what he told me. You, you, you lied in your application and, 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 you know, under the rules, he said, you know, we, we, we should terminate, you know, your application and that's it. He said, but your dad would it be, it would break your dad's heart if he knew, if he knew about something like this. So we're not going to say anything to him. Uh, now here's what's interesting. My dad was unbelievably honest in every sense. I told you he was almost a priest and uh, he didn't believe in lying. He didn't believe in so many things. And he lied on a couple of things to protect me, which I, I know he would never do on his own. When I, when I went to take the test and you have to be weighed, 
you know, to make it as a final process before you can be accepted. I go in there and what they make you do is you strip down to your underwear and there's a big long line and, and they have a scale. They have, a, they have two policemen standing there on both sides of it. And then, then there's a third one sitting down at a desk and he's writing, you know, he's got your paperwork there. And you walk up and you walk up and you walk up and, you know, and they go on there and, and now it's my turn and, and I'm scared stiff. And I walk over and the scale they had was one of those that when you go into like a doctor's office where you stand on it and, you know, and they move those and they move those, you know, those things there to show your exact yeah, weight. Yeah, the, we- the weights, the, the balance. Yeah, the, yep. the weight machine. And, and so what happened was as I'm, as I'm walking towards it, I see the policeman, uh, you know, take take the thing, and he moves, you know, and he moves that, you know, that weight thing. He puts it right, I guess, where I was at the weight I was supposed to be. The moment I, and I'll, I'll never forget this. I step on the scale. The moment I did, he boop, he taps me in the top of the head, and he said, "Just made it." And the moment he did that, I just. <laughs> I hopped right back. I looked bigger than I was because I was muscular. My dad had never said a word about anything again about that. There's absolutely no doubt in my mind that, you know, he had told these guys, you know, hey, look, he's underweight and whatever. And that's why they did what they did. As I said, my my dad, who was unbelievably honest and, and believed in doing everything absolutely the right way, bent it towards me. I mean, that's why I became so close to him. Now, after I passed, after I got weighed in, I'm all set. And the first class was starting in like two weeks and it's going to be for eight weeks. I notify them over at work and, you know, that, you know, I'll be here for two weeks and then I'll be leaving. You're quitting this job to go in the police department. I'll never forget that. Do you look back and have any regrets at that moment? No, no. My, my attitude in life and because of some things that had happened, even when I was younger, when you make certain decisions, it's like you jumped off a building. You committed suicide. You can't change your mind. I mean, you make a decision, you're stuck with it. I mean, how far are you from graduating from university? The, oh, nowhere near. I'm only like uh, finishing up my sophomore year now. And are you able to join the academy, become a police officer, and still go to university? Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. Uh, and here's the thing they're going to pay my tuition. And once I went to the academy, I meet one of my closest friends afterwards, Tony Corsentino. They have him sitting right in front, right behind me. Big, tough Italian kid, real well-built Italian kid who also had been in the seminary until he almost became a priest and left and became a policeman and became unbelievably instrumental in things that happened in my life. We, we wound up partnering up because nobody, when they, when we had these judo classes, nobody wanted to work out with him or with me because, you know, because we took it, we took it serious and, and we were too physical. They didn't want to work out. The other guys didn't want to work out. A lot of them were pussies. We didn't have a gun for about two or three weeks. We went to class and we did certain things. And now, we were, you know, we were authorized to carry a weapon. The first time I, I put the gun on and I went and I, I didn't have a car. I didn't have a car until I was about 22, 23. I had to walk over to the bus stop and get on the bus. And here I am now. Here I am now walking down this. I used to steal my dad's gun and go shoot in the alley when I was real young until I almost got caught. You know, here I am walking with a gun. 
you know, and it was just like a strange mental feeling, like almost like now people are going to respect you. When I go to the fourth district, that was a, a real, real rough area there. It had gone all black and it was a very, very dangerous area. My first day out, my first night out was on the midnight and uh, I'll never forget that night. I go to the, I, I report there, you know, hi, I was told to come in, all right. And I'm assuming I'll be going on desk duty and, and I go to the, and they have what they call a uh, a briefing that you go to. And I, I sit in there with all the rest of the people and we finish up. The lieutenant who held the briefing uh, comes over and, you know, shakes my hand and welcomes me to the district. And he tells me, he says, you know, he says, your dad's a good friend of mine. And there were these two big black policemen, big guys. And he said, these would be your partners. Um, okay. And, you know, they seem nice enough. We go out and I'm in the back seat and they're in the front seat and we get in the car and they we're talking a little bit. We're talking no more than about five or 10 minutes and we get a call, uh, a shooting, a shooting over at, and they gave it, they gave a location. Zoom, off we go. We get over to this place and here's somebody in the back and it's in the back of a, there was like a bar in the front and some back in the back alley. And here's a guy laying there. He'd been shot. People are all around and the rest of it. And you know what happened? And, uh, you know, there was a fight in the bar and it came out and somebody, uh, somebody shot the guy and off he went. We're there probably about, you know, a half hour and he's gone. We're back in the car. No more than five, 10 minutes later, we get a call. We get another call. There was a, a fight at the house. It was one thing after the the whole night. Is this exhilarating for you? Or are you like, this, this is what I want to do? I loved it. But and I, when I come home and I'm telling my dad about all this stuff, and I, they have two guys with me. My dad wants to make sure that I'm okay. My dad now is telling me, calm down. And, you know, you know, you don't want to get involved in that stuff. And, you know, you, you don't want to get yourself hurt. And, uh, you know, let somebody else, you know, let somebody else do it and this and that. Your dad wanted you to join the force, but he, he wants want me to get hurt. That's right. He, yeah. want, he wants you as a detective or a desk job or something that's not out out front where the action is. He, he, he doesn't want me to get hurt. Anyhow, and when I graduate from the academy, they tell me, you've been transferred to the 4th District. <laughs> now, number one, you're not supposed to be working in a district where you live. That's where I live. I, I live right next door, but I live in the 4th District. I'm sure my dad had a lot to do with that. He got me transferred into the fourth district, which was was still bad, but nowhere near like the third district. You know, their biggest problems were up by the steel mills. You know, with the fighting and all the rest of it, and there weren't there weren't a whole lot of murders and stuff like there were in the in the third district. It's the biggest one in the city because it goes all the way out to Indiana. When when I worked out there, and when I worked in what they called Hegwish, you're out there all by yourself. The way to get to, out there, you have to go through those. There's a couple of bridges, and if that bridge is up, you know the bridge goes up when the boats have to come by. If that bridge is up and you're in trouble, you're in trouble. You've got a huge area where it's a one man it's a one man car out there. It's, uh, a, it's not it's, it's one, not rural, but it's definitely less dense than other parts of the city. Because you've got this industrial, you've got this industrial area, the waterways, the river. The topography is a little bit different than what you traditionally expect from a. It was Ed District. It was Ed yeah. District out there. If that bridge is up, 
nobody can come in to help you. There's only you all by yourself out there. It's just the way that it is. But in Hegwish, you had a lot of firemen and policemen that lived out there. You had a Ford plant out there too. Not the stamping plant, but the other Ford plant was there. Let me read from Wikipedia briefly to give some color to this. There are approximately 2,500 jobs in Hegwish community area. The top employing industry sector in Hegwish is manufacturing. The Torrance Avenue assembly plant, the oldest continually operated plant of the Ford Motor Company, is located at 1200 South Torrance Avenue. When I was a policeman out there, I'm working full-time as a policeman. I'm going to school full-time and I'm out partying full-time. After I get through class, before I go to work, I'm going down to Rush Street and hanging around with my friends and whatever. When I went, when I worked, and that's why I love being out in Hegwish there, because it was real quiet at night. You wouldn't get a lot of calls, and I would sleep a lot out there. I would, you know, I'd just go in the car, and I'd, I'd go into the squad, and I'd, uh, in fact, I, when I was in Hegwish, I would drive over into, through this weeded area by Wolf by Wolf Lake, and I'm, I'm actually in, in Indiana. It's actually Indiana over there. I would put my, I would take off my hat, use my hat as a pillow. I'd put my feet up against the window in the squad, and I'd go right to sleep. For the most part, it would never be problems from maybe three o'clock to six o'clock. And what would happen is I would, I would usually wake up after a couple of hours, and then you know finish up driving around and 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 uh, come back to the station. One time I'm back there and, uh, and I, I fell asleep. I overslept, I overslept because a call came in, some kind of a disturbance call came in out there. And when they called for me, they couldn't, you know, when they called my car, obviously nobody answered. And what woke me up was I hear 415, 415, 415. They're like, you know, yelling in there. And I, and I can hear on the radio, I don't know, you know, we're, we're over here and we're looking. We can't find them anywhere. They got, they got all kinds of squads over there looking for me because they've, they've called me and nobody can find me. And now it's actually getting light out. So I fell asleep around 4 o'clock. And by now, it's about it's about 6.37. Now, is it, getting is it unorthodox for a rookie cop to be on his own? Or is that fairly common? No, not, not 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 real common. But by this time, I had already I had already been named policeman of the year in the district. The other policemen didn't want to work with me, and the reason they didn't is because anytime there was trouble, I wanted to go to it. And these other guys, a lot of them, you know, when there'd be a call, you know, with you know shots fired or the rest, they you know calm you know calm down, don't relax. I wanted to be the first there. A lot of these guys, you know especially out there. A lot of these guys were looking just to retire and, and get off the job. So they're all looking for me. And I wake up and, oh, my God, I got a problem. And they've got, they've got cars going up and down, probably only about a mile and a half away. But I'm, I, go, I drive into the weeds there, and it's, it's actually in Indiana. It's the Indiana side of the border. I pulled the cord out of the radio, and I drive back to, and I drive into the district. I drive into the police station. You know, are you okay? Are you okay? And I said, apparently, I said, my radio's not working. And, uh, you know, at at a certain point, I said, when I didn't even, I said, when I didn't hear any, because you can hear other calls. In other words, whenever anybody is called, you can hear that on your radio. I said, I said, I didn't hear anything for a while. And I finally realized it can't be that dead and quiet. The commander goes on the, uh, on the thing and, and calls it calls downtown and tells them, you know, cancel the lookout and whatever. We have, oh, thank God, everybody was worried sick about you. <laughs> Every, everybody, everybody was worried sick about you. When my area was right by the house, what I used to do at times 
at about when it would get quiet there around maybe uh, 3.30 or 4 in the morning. I would put my car in the garage and I would go in there and I'd set my alarm for like an hour and I'd, I'd sleep for like an hour and then come back out. So at this moment in your life, you're starting to get the hang of it, meaning you can juggle multiple things at once. You've got this great job with the police department that's very flexible on your terms. You're still at university. What's your what's your headspace? Neil, I'm 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 loving life, but I'm I'm dead tired all the time. I mean, I have, I'm, I'm, you know, as my dad, as my dad would say, you're burning things on three ends of the candle. Here, here's what I, here, here was my normal process. I mean, I would work midnights and four to 12. So I couldn't work days because I was going to school full time. For the first couple of years, I was going to school full time. I was working full time and I was still going to Rush Street and playing. And I was working part jobs all the time to make money. I, I was doing all that. I, I only slept and, and, and I had a hard time sleeping during the day when I was working midnights because I lived in a neighborhood where there were all kinds of kids. And, uh, initially when I was, when I was drinking coffee, like all the rest of them too, I couldn't sleep more than an hour or two during the day, be, you know, before I had to get up at four o'clock and go to school. It took me an hour and a half to get to school because I had to take a bus. I had to take a couple buses and the train. Then the yell to get to you know to get to school. Yeah, get to the north side to Loyola. So I'm I'm dead tired. I get my squad after about a week or two. The process I had was I would get in my squad, but I'm talking about when I started working alone. And the reason they had me working alone was because I had built up a reputation as a you know I make an unbelievable arrest and I'm doing all kinds of other things. I would get my I would get in my squad. I would uh, stop over. There was a pizza place where these guys like me. And they would give me, I get a pizza every night. They, in fact, they liked having me come there. It was about 1130 or so when they would close up and they liked having me come there and sit out in front until they close up to make sure they didn't get robbed and whatever. Cause the area was kind of a bad area. And, and I would, I would get a pizza. They'd make me a pizza, the kind I liked. And uh, so I would get my pizza. They would close up shop and I would go out. And when I went out and started working, I knew what to do and how to do it to make arrests that that others you know, obviously didn't. When I was growing up, I told you some of the kids that I ran with, they were burglars and they were they were car thieves and the rest of it. And the only reason I didn't do that is because I knew it would break my dad's heart and because I was afraid of getting caught. Were you tempted by it? They, what's that? Were you tempted by it? Well, I may have been, but I wasn't going to do it. I mean, I, I just would not do it. There were certain things I wouldn't do. And uh, that was one of them. Anyhow, but I knew what they did. Well, actually, we did. I did get involved with cars, but only so we could joyride in them. There was a used car lot over on Stony Island, not far from my house. This is a whole different story all in itself. But they, there were like four lines of cars, and they would leave the keys in the back line cars and, and the keys in the front line cars, and the two middle cars, they wouldn't. They could move the cars back and forth when they're, you know, when they people want to look at the middle cars. So what we would do, uh, I didn't even have a driver's license, is we would take the keys we would go to a, a place, they were in a hardware store about a block away. We would get another set of keys made to the car. We would put those keys back in the car. And when the car lot closed at night, uh, we, we'd take a car 
and we go over. There was a place called Reds. There was a uh, there was a uh, drive-in in the in the Beverly area. We would take the car and we would drive over there, pick up girls and pick up girls and do other things at this drive-in. And there was a place out there where we could drink, even though we were only like you know eighteen, seventeen, eighteen. We could drink. You know, I would do this for a while. You know, almost every weekend, we would take a car. When we finish up, we drive and we put the car right back where it came from. And the dealership never had a clue that the car was gone. Uh, obviously not. And then, let me tell you the finale of the story. It's one of those bizarre, bizarre things. Again, we were doing this for about a good eight, nine months. And and we got the idea. It's, you know, we're taking a bus to school every day. Let's keep the car for Let's keep this car for a while. And let's take it instead of taking the damn bus and having to stand out there. Cause a lot of times you'd stand out there for 20 minutes, the bus had come and it's too full and you can't get in and you got to wait another 20 minutes for another bus in the freezing cold. We're going to, we're going to take this car and we're going to, and we're going to take the car to school. A lot of kids had cars at the school and they had a big parking lot right across the street from the school. We're doing this now for probably for about almost two weeks. And Ronnie Ballard was one of the three I ran around with, Began, myself, and Ballard. What Ronnie was supposed to be doing was he was supposed to be, you know, after we'd, we'd come back from school, we would, he was supposed to be parking the car, but he was supposed to be parking the car in different areas. You know, so it wouldn't, you know, it, it, things, it wasn't supposed to park it by his house either. He was supposed to park it a little, you know, short distance. So we didn't think anything of it. And I'm in class one day and they had a rule at Mount Carmel. Now I'm a senior at the time. Uh, if you're caught in a car, in a stolen car, even if it's for joyriding, you're automatically thrown out of school. No ands, ifs, or buts about it. We knew that because they were constantly lecturing us about that, but we never, we never thought anything of it. We're never going to get caught. So I'm in, I'm in class. And by that time, they had separated Began and myself again there. We were in different classes. They had, they had three classes at Mount Carmel, but they had separated us because, you know, you know, we were both initially in, what they called, you know, the brightest class, but they separated us because we were always in trouble together. I get called down to the principal's office, and when I come in there, I see John and Ron sitting there, too. And the, and the moment I got called down and I saw the two of them there, I, I all my life I've, I've been lucky that immediately I knew what the problem was, you know, the stolen car. And so we're sitting there for a few minutes, and then we get called into the principal. We get called into the principal's office. Father Niles, or they're, they're disciplinarians. It was a disciplinarian's office. It was Father Niles, who had given me more than one beating in my day with his belt. And we come in there, and there's a policeman, a detective, sitting in there. The detective starts talking, and he says, "Well, you guys have got that stolen car." over there in the uh, in the parking lot what i mean my world ended my life ended at that stage and anyhow he had been talking to the prince the principal father now my father i told you was in the seminary so he was it was the carmelite seminary my oldest brother's a carmelite priest my father i find out later i didn't know at the time my father is the is the one who handles all the finances for the Carmelite order there in Chicago. He's the one who handles all their finances, does all their investments for him and whatever, and obviously is very close to him. Thank God. The, the bottom line is 
the policeman and the policeman, know, the detective knows my dad. He tells me, you know, your father, you know, this would break your father's heart, you know, and whatever. And the deal we worked out was if we could get the car back there, if we could get the car returned, and, and, and he obviously knew that, you know, I don't know how long they'd have been investigating it, but he said, if you can get the car back there without being caught, I've already I've already talked with Father Niles here, and you guys are going to be punished. You guys are going to be punished here, and if you can get the car back there, that'll be the end of this. And that's what happened. We wound up we wound up being jugged for the rest of the year. Now let me let me, uh, let me this is this is very fascinating because I'm starting to see a pattern here, and I want to talk about Father Niles for a second too in the beatings. But you come from a poor family, you start working at the age of six. Your parents are hardworking people. Your father's got three jobs. You, you are not a person of means. Your parents aren't a person of means. What are you learning when you see continually through these incidences that your father's character and his relationships are able to divert you from the harshest punishment? Is there anything learned here that, that you take with you as you progress through life? This is why I told you that before, this is why I would not do certain things. Absolutely would not do them. I would not go into burglaries. I would not get involved in the robberies. I absolutely would not do, I would not do that. I just would not do that because I knew it would break his heart. But here's an example of what is potentially Grand Theft Auto, which is a backbreaker at Mount Carmel. And because your father is this upstanding man, they look the other way. I mean, is this just business as usual in your mind? Or is this a testament, oh, to, your, a testament to your father's character and how he led his life? When, when, you're, when you're saying it was, it was uh, what do you call it, grand theft. No, we, we, were, we were taking the cars and we were joyriding in the cars. When I say we we stole them to use them, that in my mind never never seemed to be a real serious. It just didn't. It wasn't. It wasn't like you're stealing it to strip it or something, you know, and make money. But again, uh, and I never I never dreamed we'd, we'd get caught. I was so unbelievably lucky that you know in in that situation there was another situation at Marquette when I was with Murphy when we got caught drinking. And, you know, and, and it could have it could have been a real serious problem because it was my dad, because it was my dad and my dad did something he would never do too to help me. And, you know, but again, they, you know, they, we had a, we got we got jugged for the rest of the year and it was about three months to go. Yeah. And we had to go over to Jackson Park and do this and that. You know, my parents obviously never knew anything about that, but it was so unbelievably fortunate I was not kicked out of school. And the reason was because my dad was not just as a policeman, but as a Carmelite and whatever. You know, how, how, bizarre, how bizarre is that? And this was my secret. What I would do when I would come out, I would work for the three, four hours. I mean, I would be out there. And what I would do is I would drive around the neighborhood with all, with my lights out all the time. I would, you know, it, 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 when it's pitch black out there. And I drive, I'd be driving up and down through the alleys. I'd be driving, I'd be driving all around with no lights on and, uh, looking and looking to see, you know, what's, what's going on and even just following cars that were there. And then I would suddenly do is put my lights on. I'd be following along a car. It's not doing anything wrong. Just driving through a neighborhood, uh, driving through a neighborhood, but I would then put my, put my lights on 
and you know, and follow it for a little bit. And and every once in a while, the car would then just take off. Uh, you know, and now I know they're doing something wrong. And I would get involved in chases, and I made some unbelievable arrests that way. I'm in, I'm a patrolman in a squad, but I would you know, I would make unbelievable. I made an arrest of a policeman who was raping people that way. But I mean, that was that was why how how I was making a lot of these arrests. I was doing that, and I put in like two three hours doing that. And, and, your, and your numbers were stronger than people who were working a full shift. I made more arrests than anybody else. I was making, I was making, you know, one or two arrests a week, stolen cars all the time. Because like I say, what I was doing was every single car that I would go by and looking back and forth. But again, driving around like I did, you know, following cars that were doing nothing wrong. And then a lot of times too, just making a stop for no reason, you know, for no reason. And, you know, and, and when you go to pull them over and they would take off, then, you know, they're doing something wrong. And I would get stolen cars that way. I'm following a car, I'm, I'm following a car, a car one time. And I told you before, our alleys were all dirt. And I'm following, I'm following a, a car, a car down the street. I've got no lights on, and it's pitch back. And the car makes a left hand turn down an alley, and it's one of those T alleys where it comes up against 79th Street, where you've got stores there. So now it breaks off where you can turn left or you turn right, but you can't keep going straight. And I'm following the car down about halfway down the alley. And now I put my lights on. And when I do, the car takes off. The car takes off and it goes to make it, it goes to make the T turn and it can't and it crashes against the wall. And, and I jump out of the car and there's somebody still in the car. The one person to the left runs out, jumps out and is gone. And I grabbed this, there was this woman in the car and, and, and I come up and I grab her and I pull her out of the car and she's hysterical. She's crying. And she says, he tried to rape me. He, she says, he tried to rape me. And what? She said, he tried to rape me. I don't know. I don't know. You know, I don't know what else had happened. So I run back to my car and I, and I put an APB. I said, you know, I gave my, my, my location. I said, looking for, looking for a subject, a, a male subject, a male, I said, a male black subject who just, uh, who just ran out East and whatever. And, uh, apparently it was an attempted rape. And then, you know, and I realized, you know, the way she's crying, I realized she's for real. I mean, I believed her right away. And, you know, and, and I'm talking with her and I've got her back over at the squad car now. And then I get a call on the, over the air and it's, it's one of the other policemen. And he says, I'm, I'm going to make a stop. I see a subject. I see it. And it's about maybe one thirty or two o'clock in the morning. And I, and he says, I've got a subject over here. I'm going to make a, I'm going to make a stop. Okay. And so I'm there waiting and he goes, he comes back about a minute or two later. And he says, no, disregard. He said, it's an off duty policeman. You hold him there. I drive over, you know, with the girl in the car and he, and she starts, you know, that's him, that's him or whatever. He was a policeman from the third district. We had, we had been on the lookout for a rapist. What he was doing was he was grabbing people coming. There was a movie theater over there and he had done it a couple of times before where he had grabbed somebody. He had grabbed somebody coming out of the, uh, coming out of the movie theater and, uh, and raped them. It didn't kill him, but, you know, but raped him and let him go. And, uh, but I mean, so was he, was he arrested and prosecuted? Oh yeah. But I got even more angry afterwards. Sure. He was arrested, but they eventually let him do, you know, over a period of time. 
they eventually let him plead guilty to some other kind of a crime, a lesser crime. Uh, he, he would quit the job and a lesser crime, and he just got a couple of years. He didn't. He didn't get convicted for rape. I made. You know, I made unbelievable arrests, and I I, I worked like a like a dog, and yeah, I, then I was dead tired, and I would take an hour. I would go, and I would go home and sleep, and like I did for an hour or so. And finally, you know, when I was out there in Hegwish, uh, when I uh, you know I I would work until a certain period of time, and then I would go to sleep. I, I had to. Well, the number the numbers didn't lie for you in terms of what the hierarchy was looking at. You were making arrests and being highly effective. And when you enter the police force and you get your feet under you, do you think crime is now worse than you had expected in the city because now you're on the inside and crime is your job? And what is your perspective about the police department and policing in Chicago? Does your opinion change about the police department? If you had an opinion one way or another. I realized, you know, because I grew up in crime areas, you know, and, and I realized I never never thought or dreamed about organized crime or things like that as I was growing up. And even up until the time I, you know, be, even up until the time I became at first was a policeman, nothing ever interested me or never any thoughts about organized crime, even after getting into that fight with Johnny and whatever. I mean, I realized these were these were, you know, organized crime people. I realized that. Because of his name, his father, you know, his father, I knew, you know, I, I knew was the uh, head of the first district, was the alderman of the first district. And I knew those people basically ran the city. I knew that having been a policeman. But other than that, never had a second thought about any of that. But I realized it was corrupt. And as a policeman, too, I realized you had a lot of terrific policemen in, in, in the district where I was, the first district. I was there for about four years. We had terrific policemen there and we had other lazy good for nothing SOBs who didn't want to who didn't want to do a thing we had cops that were doing nothing but making traffic stops to make money and whatever and I didn't like them they were what they were when you say making traffic stops to make money you mean taking money for looking the other way after they stop people intentionally doing it there were you know there was a couple that I knew and the reason I knew was that, you know, they had me working with one. I'm only in a job probably about three or four weeks and, you know, get in the car. I'm with a policeman and, uh, you know, okay, hi, how are you? And we're driving along. I mean, we're, not, we're driving, he's driving. You know, I'm sitting in the passenger seat. He goes and uh, he goes and he makes a stop. And, okay, you know, I'm, uh, I'm just sitting there at this particular time. We weren't instructed it was before we were instructed because there had been some problems to when one gets out, you get out, you go stand there just in case. So anyhow, I'm just sitting in the car. He's up there for a little bit talking with him, maybe five minutes and he comes back and uh, he goes to hand me a dollar. And, you know, what here? I've not, <laughs> you know, it was like he was handing me, handing me a, a, a narcotics or something. What's that? You know, it was, I said, I said, no, 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 no. I said, no, I don't, I don't. And he goes, it's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. I said, I don't want it. No, I don't, I don't want to get involved. I don't want to get involved with that. And what was I he, what I, was he doing? Was he, was he actually stopping someone for a violation and then taking money to not ticket them? Or was he making something up out of whole cloth and then shaking them down? You know, I have no idea. On this first instance, you know, I'm, I'm just sitting there. I'm assuming right afterwards, yes, that's what he did. You know, what he did. But I got to know him only not because I worked with him again. And then I didn't work with him after that. 
You know, he didn't. He didn't make any more stops that night, and I never worked with him he's again. Test, he's testing you, obviously, to some degree. Just, just assuming, I guess that yeah. you know I would do it. And, I, and I in all your, and in all your years of policing, you never encountered mass corruption inside the police force. And is policing and being inside the system shape you as you move towards becoming a defense attorney? And as you become a defense attorney. Has your perspective about law and order in Chicago different than if you just became an attorney and you were never a, a police officer? Oh, I'm certain. I'm, I'm certain of that because what was so helpful to me, so many things I did as a policeman made me realize I would realize when they were lying, when policemen, and they, so many of them do almost, and, you know, not that they're bad guys, but they just feel this is a bad guy and no lie to get them convicted. So many policemen, when they would get up there and even FBI agents and, and others uh, get up there and they lie to try to build a case. I would have a good idea. They are probably lying because I did that. And I knew exactly what would happen. Like when you're chasing somebody and whatever, uh, there, there were so many things that I picked up on, you know, from, from what I was doing and from what I saw other people doing that I would have a second sense when they're lying. And I would, and on my cross examinations, that was my real success as an attorney was cross examining people. And this isn't so much necessarily lying about falsifying evidence or making things up. It's more about leaving things out or shading the truth, even though someone yes. may have committed a crime the officer or who have have you may be omitting information and you you knew these techniques so to speak and this is or what had made a you good, or, or had a good had a good suspicion almost all, you know i could so many that's why i was so able to get out of so many jams even when i was wearing the wire and the rest of it you know the moment something happens right away i immediately you know contemplate you know why or whatever or you know or, or and would have a quick answer or way or response to get out of it when pat marcy put his hand on my back and obviously put it on the wire immediately you know I, my thought would was to tell him i had a back brace on and, and i and i played that silly game but so many arrests that i made were because of things that i knew that were done and uh and and i had ways i had ways to you know to uh but we're talking now about corrupt policemen. Yes, there were some out there in, in South Chicago. And, and even when I, now when I got to the 18th district and I met these mob related policemen, I realized, I realized and saw so much more. I saw how the mob used that police badge, you know, to their advantage. The corruption, for the most part, the average policeman, for the most part, is a good, legitimate, you know, solid guy. And there's exceptions in, in, in every rule. But there were about three or four policemen that I, I knew after seeing them, and they would even talk and brag about it. Their sole purpose was to make money out there. They were out there making street stops to make money, even even to stop a person who's speeding. And uh, like in Indianapolis Boulevard, they were speeding up and down all the time. I would make about 20, 25 stops. But I did it for a different reason. I did it because when you go to make a stop, if they're criminals, they'll try to take off. Or if it's a stolen car, they'll take off. I would make about 20 stops and I might give out one ticket, but I wasn't, I wasn't going to risk my, uh, my law career to take a couple of dollars out there. Absolutely yeah. no way in God's earth am I going to do that. One thing I think is really interesting about your story, and we'll, we'll talk more about this, I think, a little bit further down the episodes is, because of your experience as a police officer, as a defense attorney, and then rising to be amongst the elites in Chicago, your perspective about corruption is really unique because what one realizes is 
you can, in a city like Chicago, you can point the finger at the police, but it's everywhere. It's the police, it's the politicians. The whole system has a layer and level of corruption, and I think it's all interwoven. I don't think you, you can't separate one from the other, and I think it's the police take a lot of heat, especially now, and I think, of course, some of it's deserved, but the politicians should take just as much heat, if not more, because these are the people that govern these agencies and govern these people, and I think their crimes are much more damaging and heinous in many ways, and I, and, I, and I don't mean to outweigh one form of corruption over another, but I think you you realize that in a city like Chicago, it's kind of completely infested, which is the true tragedy, um, because it's hard to really clean up one part of it without cleaning up all of it. But again, that's something I think we can speak to l- later on. What what. What, can, can we talk about Nolan for a second? Because you talk, you, you made a reference about how you took some beatings from him. What, what do you mean by that? Like, oh, yeah. He, in, in, Carm- in Mount Carmel, in fact, that's what obviously really helped me a lot in putting me in the right, in the right path. They have what they call brothers. They aren't quite priests. They never took the final vows. Maybe they were married and they had kids or whatever. But they're they they they're they're called brothers rather than priests. They have these big thick leather belts, you know, like the big police, the big black police belts. And when you go to Mount Carmel, when before you come in there, they only had like nine hundred students. Uh, there would be three or four times that many people wanting to get in. And before you go into Mount Carmel, you have a meeting with the priests, and they tell you we we believe in corporal punishment. And if you're if your kid if you if you want your son, it was an all boys school at the time. If you want your son to come to Mount Carmel, and uh, if they get out of line, we will discipline them. And that means giving them. That means hitting them with the belts. That means you know we we will do certain other forms of punishment, but we will also punish them with the belts. And uh, so when you would do something, <laughs> when and if you don't like that, you don't. They don't come to our school. You know, have a nice day. So the parents uh, you know, accept that fact. Did so, and, and, and when faced with this, did anyone fight back? No. <laughs> no. So, like, what no. happens? You go in a room and there's Nolan with a belt. They do it. No, they do it in front of the class. Man. Well, I will. I will tell you the worst one. I had gotten a, probably about maybe half a dozen of these. You know, of these uh, the belt jobs. On one occasion, now we're in one of those double rooms where the class goes goes up somewhat. And you've got a double room. You've got about maybe 50 people in there, 45 or 50 people. And you've got like a you know stair thing that goes up and the seats are all there one row after the other. And I'm sitting towards the back, the back of it. We only had about maybe in the whole school, maybe about 10 black kids. There was a black kid who was a, who was a friend who became a friend of mine. It was a friend of mine, Leroy Churchill, big, big black kid, big kind of a fat kid. He sat in front of me and uh, he had been called on. For, he had been called on for whatever reason. And when he went to sit down, I had some, I was chewing some gum and I threw some gum in the seat. And when he, when he went to stand up, you had this, you know, this, this string of like gum hanging there and everybody, and everybody starts laughing. The, the priest calls me up, get up here, you know, and, you know, and, and I, I didn't, how did he know? I didn't, I didn't necessarily do it. Could have been anybody. Anyhow, I get called up. To, I get called up to the front, 
bend over. I went, what? And you know, why? Bend over. He hits me about four or five times. I mean, I mean, really hard. And I mean, it hurt. Normally, you only got about two or three. I got about four or five. And, and, I, and I walk up. I'm walking kind of funny, and I'm doing my best not to cry. Because when I go, when I go to sit down, you know, I kind of jump back up because it hurt. And everybody starts laughing all the more. And he thought I was being funny. And he called me down again. And he gave me about five more. And now I am crying. I'll tell you, I don't think I got another beating. <laughs> That'll straighten I mean, you out really quick. Is this? <laughs> well, I, I don't remember. See, what they would do, what they would do at Mount Carmel, at least with me, you have a teacher for this class, a teacher for that class, a teacher for that class. There was an English teacher that we had that was a civilian, Farrell, that was his name, that he wasn't a priest. And they aren't allowed, you know, they aren't allowed to hit you. So when, whenever I would do something, and he was a real, I mean, real nice, easygoing you know, naive, naive type guy. Uh, what he was instructed to do when I acted up was to call you know, the disciplinarian and he would come down and administer the, uh, the wherever. I That's never, fascinating I never, that there were uh, designations of who could administer the beating and who could not. Only the, uh, only the, what do you call it? The, the Carmelite, uh, Carmelite brothers. Let's go back to talking about where you are in this moment in time. You're a police officer, you're excelling, you're the top cop in this district, you're still at Loyola going to business school. What events happen that lead you to become an attorney? What During this time now, so you understand my mental state and the rest of it, I couldn't be happier. I'm a, I'm a policeman and I'm still riding a bus because I don't have, I can't afford a car. The first, the first, I, the first car I bought was a twenty. Was, I paid twenty five dollars for it. It lasted about three days. I remember I bought. It was a Plymouth. It was a push button Plymouth, and I paid twenty five dollars for it because he told me he thought he was having a problem with the transmission. So what I'm doing to try to get a car is I'm working. I'm also working, you know, security jobs. I'm working over at high schools. Uh, you know, to make some to make some money because I'm trying to save up some money to get a car. You know, I'm not going to take anything out there in the street because I don't want to take a chance on risking on risking my you know my whole life uh, taking any money because a lot of them were doing it and and they were talking at times they were at times you'd see where they were having you know having people out there setting up policemen and whatever. So there's no way in God's earth I'm going to do something that's going to you know cost me everything. And everything is everything is going great and now finally. I lose my uh, deferment and I get drafted. I have to go into the military. When I get drafted, I, I go and I take the physical and I pass it. And I was told I've got two weeks because I had I was in law school at the time. I was in my uh, second semester of law school. They told me that, you know, I, they'd let me finish. And it was about a two-week period or maybe a three-week period. And then I was going to be drafted. Earlier, you know, I never wanted to go in the military, mainly because I knew I'd have a problem with the food and the rest of it. And so, okay, for my first semester, we had the riots going on when I was in law school. And these were the, the real riots where they were shooting and, and killing people and all. The Martin Luther King riot and then the Kennedy riots and the rest of it. And, uh, and so I wasn't going to school. I wasn't going to uh, to class at all. We finally had our exams. I had I think three courses, uh, three courses, and I had uh, two I had two C's and a D. In law, where I went at Kent, 
if you didn't have a C average at the end of your first year, you're thrown out of school. I had to do some studying this time, and, and I skipped a lot of going to school using the excuse of the riots. And I go instead and meet Murphy and those guys for drinks at a bar across the street from school. And I had been doing that again because the riots were still going on during this time. I took a week off of uh, of work, and I was going to study, and, and I'd, I'd be all set. So I decided I was going to go to confession. It was a Friday night. And starts and start studying, but I, I hadn't been to confession in a long, long time, or to church in a long, long time, and I figured I might need some help from the big guy. And uh, because I I felt that uh, you know when I go into the army now, I want to be able to go back and and finish up and finish up law school. And uh, and if I don't, I'll never be able to go back to law school. I go to confession that night, and when I go in there, and this white girl comes out of the confessional, sits and kneels down in front of where I was, and then there was one other person waiting to go in, and that person went in the confessional, and uh, she was still there when I went in the confessional, saying she must have been a bad girl because she was doing some penance, and and I go in there, and I come out, and I do my penance. And I'm walking back. I lived across the street, kitty corner across the street. The church was over on the northeast corner, St. Felicia's Church. And I lived over on the uh, right across the street and a couple houses down. As, as I come out and as I'm walking, I look over and I see this girl and I see a gang of about probably about 10, 15 black kids. And they're trying to drag her into an alley. Uh, and she's she's like fighting with them there. And, and I go over and I've got my gun on. I've got my pistol with me and I go over and, and I run run by where she is. And I, I pull out the gun and, you know, and I and I put them on on these guys and I tell her, you know, I tell her, you know, she walks away and she had a car that was parked over by the curb. And, and I've got I'm standing here for a minute or two with the gun. And these were these were like kids. These guys weren't probably any more than about 13, 14 years old, 15, maybe 15 years old. One of them said this part is kind of hazy now, but somebody said, you know, put your gun away or something. We'll see how tough you are. I hear squad cars coming. I can hear the sirens. I put the gun away, physically fighting with a couple of them. And as I hear them getting closer, I grab on the two of them. And I'm standing by now. I'm standing close to the street. And I can see the I can see one of the cars coming. Next thing I know, I get pushed right in front of the squad coming down the street. The squad winds up running over me, and when it does, uh, they wind up pulling me out from under the back wheels. Everybody thought I was dead, and and I spent like nine months in the hospital after that. You're off duty. You witness this woman being attacked by a group of men, and you intercede and get in a scuffle and end up being thrown into the street where an oncoming officer in a squad car runs you over. Yep. And then you go to the hospital for nine months. Well, I was unconscious for the first couple of days. It happened right in front of my house. I wind up in the hospital for, uh, I'm unconscious for a couple of days. Everybody thought I was going to die. They couldn't imagine how anybody could have survived that. But I was in unbelievable physical shape at that time. But the front wheels ran completely over my body. And I was told I was pulled out from just, you know, the back wheels were just against me. And I had been pushed a bit, I guess, by that. He was doing about 60 miles an hour when he came down the street, this jackass. I'm in the hospital. When I finally wake up about, it was like a few days later, when I finally wake up, I look like a mummy. Both my legs are, you know, are up and my arms are up. I'm bandaged almost from head to toe. In fact, while I was in the hospital, you remember Richard Speck, don't you? Of course. 
Well, when I was in the hospital, uh, I was dating one of the nurses that wound up taking care of me, and another one I knew that was taking care of me. They were, they were both of them were killed by Richard Speck while I was in the hospital. One, Sue Ferris was one of the girls I was dating. Sue Ferris, I, I knew a lot of the girls because I was in the hospital all the time. You know, I was a when I was a policeman. I was over there drinking coffee and whatever, and I dated one of them. And the second one was one of the nurses that I called her shots. She was one of the nurses that gave me shots all the time because I had to get shots every day when I first when I first woke up. Here's a list of Speck's victims, not to go down this dark hole. Gloria Jean Davy, Susan Bridget Ferris, Merlita Ormato Gargulo, Mary Ann Jordan, Patricia Ann Matzek, Valentina Passan, Nina Jo Schmale, Pamela Lee Wilking. No, but Sue Ferris was the only I mean, I was yeah. dating Sue Ferris. The other one, I knew her shots. I, but I, Sue Ferris was a nurse in the hospital taking care of you when you were recovering from this accident. Ultimately right. ends up murdered at the hands of, of Speck. Yes. I'll tell you I'll tell you what really changed my entire life. I mean, my entire life. I was in the hospital and I was like, you know, they told you the mayor came to see me. Uh, I was like an unbelievable celeb because the newspapers before that, the Southeast Economist always wrote me up. Here's this, we've got this policeman. He's in law school. He's making all these arrests. Every time I did something, they were over there taking my picture and whatever. I'm dating Sue, which she let me do. I had a couple of those uh, waste baskets full of ice. And in my room all the time, we had beer in there. We had wine in there. Uh, it was like party time all the time in my room. Policemen coming in to visit all the time. It was like a big party in there. I'm here at first really feeling so sorry for myself. I am so angry. Here I am doing the right thing. I'm, I'm, I'm going to church. I'm going to confession. I, you know, I've straightened my whole life out in every way. I'm I'm working like a dog. I'm I'm not just partying and playing, but I'm working like a dog. I'm working extra jobs to try to make some money. I'm trying to make some money, and God lets this happen to me. Uh, and God lets us have, I'm, I'm laying there in unbelievable pain for a long period of time. And I called the one nurse shots because normally, I guess you're supposed to only get so many shots, whatever. My doctor had told them anytime he says he wants one, give him one. I'm laying in there feeling sorry for myself, even though I've got all this going on around me. And there's this guy who's walking up and down by my door. And I, I can almost envision him, the poor guy now. And for whatever reason, I'm getting mad at you know, what the hell is with this guy, you know, always sticking his head in and whatever. And this goes on for, you know, two, three days. I said to the one nurse and she's there when he's walking, this is in the daytime, she's there when he's walking by. And I, I, I said, what's his problem? Both his both his hands were, were like, had like casts of some sort over, over both his hands. And she said, he works in the steel mills and he fell into, I don't know if she said a furnace or into one, something and melted both his hands off. It was like somebody he shot me with a shotgun or something. And he's still standing there and I'm looking at him and I'm thinking to myself, this guy is looking at me and he is so envious. You know, I'm laying here and they might be chopping off one of my hands. They were talking about cutting off my left hand, uh, you know, but the rest of me is eventually going to heal up. I said to myself, I will never complain about something the rest of my life. I should have been killed a couple of times before that and for sure that time. And I felt that, uh, you know, God has, God has something in store for me. When you're in the hospital, you are in law school at this point in time. 
Oh, yeah, sure. What was that decision that, that drove you to law school? The, what drove me to law school was when I was a policeman in court. I saw these guys that were total nitwits. And I'm talking about in narcotics court and some of the others. These lawyers, I thought, were complete imbeciles just watching them and listening to them. And I thought, I'm a hell of a lot sharper than these guys. And when I became a policeman, Neil, my thought was to become the superintendent because I think he made like 40000 a year. And my thought was, when I became a policeman, I want to be superintendent. This was my thought. As I say, I saw these guys that I thought were complete morons. And, 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 and now some of these guys, too, are approaching me to fix cases and whatever. There was one in our district. You know, well, listen, I got a gun case on, on a case where I arrested somebody on a gun case. Somebody tried to pull a gun on me. And he told me, I'll get you $25 if you want to do it. I said, you know, that was what made me decide to go to law school. So wait, wait, but, hold on. So as a police officer, a defense attorney comes to you and wants to offer you money to botch the case? Yes, offer me. Call me. I'll get you. You know, if you can, if you can, you know, if you can, kind of like you know, hedge your testimony. I think of the exact words you used. But uh, you know, and and I, and you know, I said no. I don't want. I don't want anything. And then I said no. But just seeing these other lawyers. I, I never had any thoughts about being a lawyer until I became a policeman and saw these guys. Bring, bringing that up to something else just came to mind. And how I was able to, you know, be where I was and how I was able to repay this person. I had a professor in law school, Shelvin Singer, and hopefully, here's around my age, so hopefully he's still around today. When I got, they had a rule again at Loyola, I mean, at Chicago, Kent, when I was there. If you don't take, if you don't take your tests at the end of the semester, that's life and that and you're done. So in other words, when I wasn't able to come and take my test, that was the end of my career at Chicago Kent. When I'm in the hospital, obviously he had seen it and I didn't know him except as a teacher, professor, you know, in class before that, that had never spoken to him, had never had any knowledge of him, had never knowledge of, you know, who he was or, or whatever. When I'm in the hospital, he comes in to see me and he says, I saw what happened. I saw it on the news and whatever. And he said, when you're able, I, I've talked to your other professors. Gee, Tony, Tony. You all right? Yeah. Don't ask me why. It's, suddenly this would affect me like this. Just an emotional moment. Wow. I'm damn. You okay? Um, yeah, but what, what, what I'm remembering now is I hadn't even thought about that until he walked in. You know, that, that was the least of my thoughts until he walked into that room. And, and I'm in there, I'm laying in there, and, and I'm almost envisioning it again now. He comes in and, gee, you know, hi, how are you? And you know, I said, well, this well as can be expected. And, uh, he uh, and he says to me, you know, I've talked to the other professors, and uh, you get well. He said, you get well, and uh, whenever you're able, he said, you let me know. I'll give you my phone home phone number, and uh, you let me know, and uh, we'll arrange to have you come in and take the test. And and I thought, and, and wow. And, uh, you know, I, I couldn't thank him enough. The reason I'm I'm emotional now is how I, I was able to help him later on. 
when he wanted to become a he he can't you know he, when he wanted to become a judge and you know, I was able to do that I I helped make him a judge if that had not happened again too you know my career in every, in every in my career in every direction in every direction would have been over with the foundation laid we'll next begin our journey into the chaos and crime of Chicago's underworld make sure you're following us so when episode four drops you'll hear about corruption in the courts bob's journey through the chicago riots and his gambling escapades which cement his stature with the outfit thanks for listening